Welcome to the 422nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Jessica Anya Blau, author of the new novel, Mary Jane. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jessica Anya Blau, author of the new novel, Mary Jane. Nick Hornby recently said of the novel, if you have ever sung along to a hit on the radio in any decade, then you will devour Mary Jane at 45 RPM. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sure. If someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Mary Jane, how would you describe the novel? I guess it's a coming of age, uh, a girl's coming of age, but with a rock star and a movie star and a psychiatrist and a hippie in 1975 in Baltimore. So it's a, a coming of age at a time when coming of age was totally different than it would be now because it's the mid 70s and she's spends the summer with a very famous rock star and a movie star. I, I don't know if that's a good description or not. I'm probably the worst person to ask. <laughs> not a problem. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Mary Jane? The original idea, I was at a party and somebody had mentioned that when they were a summer nanny one summer, there was an extraordinarily f- worldwide famous person hidden in the attic all summer getting treatment. And that to me just seemed like the most amazing thing I'd ever heard, that I couldn't believe that this huge star was hidden away in this town for the summer. And so immediately that, just that idea fascinated me. And then I was, I ghostwrite sometimes and I was ghostwriting for a a celebrity and, and I don't know if you've worked with Hollywood or actors before, but there's a lot of, there's not very many boundaries often, which is fine with me. I'm from Southern California and I come from a family that has very slim boundaries. It was this very intimate working and, and we were reading her diaries and they were amazing. And I said, wow, you should just edit these diaries and publish them. And then two days later, she decided to write the book herself and I was fired. And in that moment, I was just so angry and hurt and outraged on all those things that one is when we're fired. And, and probably most people get fired once in their life. So you probably know how I feel or how I felt. And in that time, I just thought, oh, I just want to, I want to write. Like I just had this urge to write exactly what I wanted without any input from anyone else, without what anybody else wanted. And I was remembering that story of that famous person hidden in on that third floor for a summer. And I just sat down and I started writing Mary Jane. And I think the opening scene is almost pretty much how I wrote it that day. And it once I opened it and once I started it, then each place took me to another place. So it wasn't really thought out ahead of time. It just, it opened up as it went along for me. As you just mentioned that, I was curious, do you normally outline your novels or did they come to you like this where it just unfolds on the page? You know what? I don't outline them. Normally I start with a single image or idea and then it unfolds. And I might have an overall idea of what it's about. And and I will write that in one sentence at the top of the page in all caps. And I'll look up and I'll read it as I'm writing. So I'll remind myself where I'm headed and where I'm headed. But that single sentence probably changes 30 times as I'm writing because the writing will take me to one other place. And so then I just, then I'm writing something else. So I just keep changing what I'm doing. With Mary Jane, it was the same, except for I think the only thing is that I had 
I usually have an idea of where things are and what the situation is and who the character is. And, and with Mary Jane, I just knew the situation and the character. And it wasn't until I had her walk into that messy hippie house with the Buddhas and everything stacked on the stairs and the mess and the chaos and the books everywhere and, and this sort of disorder. And when I had her walk into that house, this sort of opened up the idea to me that her house would be the exact opposite. And within those two houses and the ideas around those two houses, the book really opened up for me. And the story told itself in a way. I know that sounds 70s mystical, but there was a way in which the story just kept revealing itself to me. Sure, sure. And I think that's part of the writing process is if you pursue a narrative, sometimes it just opens up for you as you're writing. Yeah. In the best circumstances, right? And that's right. the that's when it's the most joyful is when you're uncovering something that feels interesting and exciting to you. And, and rather than just like scratching with your fingernails at the dirt, <laughs> find something which can be so painful. I also think it's interesting. You mentioned this messy house with the Buddhas and et cetera. And I think sometimes, especially I'm just thinking I have two teenagers and they can go to YouTube and see meditation videos or yoga videos or what have you. I think sometimes people forget that in the 1970s, if that was exotic, it's not right. something that was so mainstream. Yeah. Especially I placed the novel in Baltimore in a neighborhood called Roland Park. I grew up in Southern California and that house, the Cone House, was essentially my house that I grew up in. And so my parents, it was just chaos and disorder and a refrigerator with unidentifiable foods and fuzz growing on everything. It was just, and all my friends had these wonderfully organized, clean, tidy houses. So I always longed for the opposite of what we had. But in even in Southern California, we were the freaks. But in a place like Baltimore, and in this neighborhood that I wrote about, which is called Roland Park, it was, an, it was a neighborhood that was designed by the Olmsted brothers who designed Central Park. And they're very famous designers of spaces. And this was one of the first planned communities they designed. So in, in this neighborhood, in particularly, things really, there really wouldn't be a house like that. And if there was, it would be very shocking. And, and a house like that would only happen, the book takes place in 1975. And that would be the first year there would be a house like that. So it really is about a time and a place also, a time when it's a shameful time in the history of Roland Park because Jews weren't allowed in the neighborhood and the Cohn family would be the, among the first Jews allowed in the neighborhood. So really capturing this time and this place and then this girl who's faced with this whole new world that is that really was unimaginable to her before she walked in that house. Whereas in Southern California... I think even though most things were tidy and clean in, in the mid-70s, most things weren't, it wasn't, you were more exposed to sort of those ideas of Buddha and hippies and homemade yogurt and stinky cheeses <laughs> and things like that. So why Baltimore? What was the thought process behind that? One was to get the neighborhood, but it's also, it's the neighborhood. I don't know if you've read Ann Tyler's books, The Accidental Tourist and Dinner mm -hmm. at the Homesick Restaurant, and like all those books, but they all take place in this neighborhood in Baltimore. So there is a, a bit of an ode to Ann Tyler here because she has all these amazing books that I love so much that take place in this neighborhood. But Baltimore, really, just because that neighborhood, it was so, it's, it's beautiful and it's interesting, but it has a complicated and, and shameful past. But really, it's just, 
it seemed like a perfect place for something like this to happen. But I also, in order for it to be believable that the psychiatrist for whom Mary Jane is the summer nanny, for it to be believable that he has a very famous rock star and famous movie star in his house, I needed them to be in a city that was close enough to New York so that it would be close enough to New York that they would find him, find each other, but far enough from New York that they would have to move in for the summer. He, the rock star is there seeking treatment for heroin addiction for the summer. So it had to be far enough that you really want to just move in for the summer and get treated. And in Baltimore, there's Johns Hopkins and there's Shepard Pratt. And there's all these places that have very esteemed psychiatrists and, and mental health facilities. And there always have been. Zelda Fitzgerald used to go to Baltimore every year to check in when she was feeling destabilized. And many, many celebrities have gone to Baltimore for these reasons. So Baltimore is a perfect place in that it would be a realistic setting for something like this to happen. Sure. Mary Jane, as we mentioned, is set in the 1970s. Did you do any research just to remind you of life in the 70s versus the 2020s? Yes, of course. Especially, yes. First of all, I listened to Billboard Top 100 from 1975, just hours and hours, because I love that music. I love the 70s music. I even love disco. When you get into the 80s, there's definitely some stuff I like, but the 70s, just so much, there was like funk and soul and folk music and rock and disco. There was just such amazing music. So I listened to all the music of the time. And then I had my car preset to 70s songs. So you get the whole decade. So I was constantly listening to the music, just get in the, in the headspace. And then the internet can be an amazing thing. I looked up record stores in Baltimore in 1975, and there are so many wonderful people who love chronicling all this stuff and putting up photos and writing about their memories and writing about stuff like that. And so I would look that up and, and I would look at streets and pictures. And the thing about the neighborhood I picked is it's 120 years old and it hasn't changed at all. So I didn't have to worry about the setting and the house and what the houses look like or the neighborhood look like, or even the little market where Mary Jane and Izzy, the five-year-old she's in charge of, shop because that, sh that little market has been there over 100 years. So it's such an old established neighborhood that the setting was exactly the same, but everything outside of it, I, I went on the internet. And then I called people who had grown up in Baltimore and knew it through the decades. And I like when it, there's a scene where Mrs. Cohn goes and buys new dishes. And I thought, where would she buy dishes? And I start Googling that and that wasn't coming up in Google. Like, where would you buy dishes in 1975? So I called somebody who grew up there and she told me the name of a store that I know was a jewelry store. So then I thought, really? But this jewelry <laughs> said, no, it used to have dishes. You used to buy dishes there. Somebody like that would buy dishes there. So I ended up calling the store and they put me on the phone with the store historian. And that's how long that store has been there. The store has been there 100 years. And they actually had a historian who confirmed that women of a certain class and from certain neighborhoods would have certainly bought their dishes there in 1975. So I did try and nail everything down. And hopefully I got it right. I did misspell the name of a store and I got a couple of notes from readers that I had done that. So that will be changed in, on the <laughs> ebook right away. But yeah, no, the internet was fine. I try not to wormhole too much because I find you can just while away your writing time reading right. stuff. I tried to find just what I need and then move on. Yeah. So you mentioned this Billboard Top 100 from 1975. Do you have some favorite songs from the 70s since music is such a, a factor in Mary Jane? 
Yeah. It, this, the music was just making me so happy. And I would put it on really loud and I would dance by myself and do dance. It was just so great. So a lot of it I knew. And there's so much I discovered. My favorite discovery of everything was I discovered the band Parliament, who I have never heard of before, but and people are probably think I'm a freak that I hadn't, but I had <laughs> never heard of Parliament before. And then they had this song, Up for the Downstroke, and I just thought, I can't believe I never knew this song before. It's like the greatest song ever. And I would just listen to that song over and over again. And then there was stuff. My mother in the 70s, she loved music, and she would buy records. And so our house was full of records. And I was too young to buy records or music, so I'd listen to my mother's music and put on her records. So I was exposed at a really young age to all this stuff that I that none of my friends were that I really wouldn't have known otherwise just from her, what she listened to. And what she listened to was, in my opinion, at this point as an adult, going back and listening to it was great. We had John Prine and, and Bonnie Raitt, and she would bring in Elton John and the Rolling Stones and Almond Brothers. And she really just, she had this great, it was a lot of folk. She didn't have much funk, I, I have to say that, but it was folk and rock music. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, she's still like that. She's like right now she's into the new Bob Dylan album and she can't get over the fact that Leonard Cohen has passed and still listens to him all the time. So there was really a lot of the funk, which I love, and it's maybe my favorite category of music, that a lot of that was really new and exciting for me. Whereas some of the stuff that would be new to maybe other people was stuff that I knew and loved in the band and, and Linda Ronstadt and Emmylou Harris and, and even Glenn Campbell, who seemed square, but he had some great songs. Rhinestone Cowboy, and there was some great stuff in there. Yeah, so I think my favorite new song that I had never heard before was Up for the Downstroke. Great. What was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? I was, I always wrote, I always kept diaries and I kept them obsessively. So I was, when you're a little girl, everybody gives you, you said you have kids. Do you have a daughter? Uh, No, I have have two boys. Two boys. For whatever reason, diaries seemed to always be gender specific. They shouldn't be boys (laughs) as much as girls. But for some reason, at least when I was a kid, they were very gender specific and girls would get diaries as a birthday present every year. And I was the only kid I know of who filled that diary page beginning to end every single year, diary after diary without really thinking of it. So I was actually always writing all the way through college. I was just filling journals and filling diaries and just and, and I was constantly, I was, when I was a little kid, I didn't have any friends. I didn't like children. And my best friend was a 75, maybe she was 72, but 75-year-old woman who lived across the street. And I would sit with her and talk and have tea. I couldn't, I, I didn't get kids. And so I spent a lot of time just silently watching. And for whatever reason, my impulse was to write down what I'd seen and observed. It was like I was always watching a movie in the world. Like the world is a giant movie and I was watching it constantly and then writing down, writing about it. So I was constantly writing and and without realizing I was practicing writing. And then when I moved to Canada with my then husband, I wasn't allowed to work or go to school as part of the immigration thing. He could work, but I was not allowed to do anything. So of course I just started losing my mind because I didn't have any friends and I was lonely and I didn't have any family around and he was at work all day and I was just. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In a house in Canada in the snow and the cold, and I was, like, obsessively cleaning house. And I just started writing every day. I started writing short stories, and, and I have no idea why or how. And I just started writing these short stories. And I, and I found that when I wrote in the day, I felt okay. If I didn't see anyone or because I was feeling so useless and pointless, not having a job and not being in school and not even having an, the outlet of friends. And I felt so invisible. And I just, I found that if I sat there and wrote, it was an okay day. And by the time he came home, I was fine. And I spent a year writing and I, I realized what I was doing is I was teaching myself to write. I was always a reader. And in that time of extreme loneliness and isolation, I was also probably reading maybe two novels a week. I was, I'd read a novel by someone and then I would do that thing where you find everything they've written and then mm-hmm. you read it all. So I remember reading every Milan Kundera in that period of time, just like straight through. So I was reading and writing and I, I, I was unaware that I was just practicing and, and teaching myself to write. And then I printed out one short story. I gave it to my husband. I said, can you print this for me? And he printed it to me and I read it on a piece of paper. And I thought, I wonder if this is, I had no idea if it was any good. Nobody knew, nobody saw anything. It was all this very sort of secret, quiet thing I was doing. And I just thought, I'm just going to send it to a magazine because I would read magazines. I would go to Book City down the street and, and stand there and read magazines and maybe buy one magazine and a book. And and I sent it to a magazine I had read where they had short stories and the magazine took it and it just seemed miraculous at the time. Like I just, I felt like my head was exploding. I thought, I can't believe that I wrote something and somebody's going to publish it. It was just, it seemed unimaginable. It was so strange and wonderful to me. And then I thought, maybe I'm okay. Maybe I can do this. Like I just thought maybe it's, I'm okay at it. Maybe I've, I just had no sense of myself. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I'll just apply to graduate schools. And so I thought, well, just apply to the top schools in in the U.S. and see what happens. And I got into graduate school. And and when I got into graduate school, that was when I could finally say, okay, I guess I'm writing. Even though I'd been doing it pretty much my whole life, it wasn't until I was, until somebody else said, you're writing, which is wrong. I hope that people who sit at home and write in diaries and write short stories think of themselves as a writer without anyone else having to say it. Because it's a shame that was how I saw it, but sure. that is how I saw it. So that, and then I just never stopped. And, and what led you to that first novel? Was that something that you wrote in your graduate program? No, the first novel was, I went to Breadloaf. I don't know if you know what Breadloaf is. It's just a writing place where a bunch of writers get together. And I had a, gotten a scholarship there because I'd been publishing short stories and so I was at Breadloaf and I was working with the writer, Lynn Freed. Have you read her stuff? I have not. She's amazing. She's just brilliant. She's from South Africa and she has this, she's this beautiful South African accent. And so I was in this workshop with her and she told everybody to go write one good sentence in, in her South African accent. Rat sound like rat. Go rat. Go rat. One good <laughs> sentence. And so I went to rat my sentence and I'm sitting there. And of course I was in complete panic because I, I can be a little insecure and freaked out about whatever. I'm, I'm as insecure as the next person. Let's put it that way. And I was terrified and I'm thinking one good sentence like that, but it just seems like it would be easier to write a novel than one. I think she wanted one great sentence or something. 
And I had this image, this childhood image of when I was a little kid and my parents and all their friends would swim naked. And I was remembering watching one of their friends on the diving board naked, jumping up and down this naked grown man. And I was watching him and I, I hadn't understood the male anatomy until that moment. Like I thought that a penis and a testicles were like six inches apart from each other. And as I was watching him jump on the diving board, I thought, oh, wow. I I just didn't know that this, it was just like the most bizarre image. And of course I was in a bathing suit. The grownups would all go naked, but none of the kids would. And so I just wrote one sentence about that strange sight as a little kid. And Lynn Freed read it and she just loved the sentence and she was laughing. And so of course I was just like glowing with her praise because I've read all her books and I was a fan and I loved her. And then I ran into this very famous book editor who had read a short story I'd had published, which again was like blowing my mind. Like I was thinking, I can't believe you read my short story, but she had read my short story in, it was in the sun magazine. And she said to me, oh, you, I, are you writing a novel? I, I, you have to send me your novel. Are you writing a novel? And, and I lied because I wanted her to be interested in me. And I said, yes, I am writing a novel. <laughs> and she said, what's it called? And I said, and I just thought of it at the top of my head because I'd just written that one sentence. And I said, it's called The Summer of Naked Swim Parties. And she said, that sounds great. Send it to me when you're done. And so then I thought, <laughs> okay. And then I thought, well, I better go write that novel right now. And so that's how I wrote The Summer of Naked Swim Parties, which was my first novel. I was feeling instructed to write it by this sort of the combination of Lynn Freed liking that one sentence and then that book editor liking that short story. And when I did write the novel, I don't, it was never sent to that woman. It was, it was sent to <laughs> Kate Mitzel at HarperCollins, who bought it and who's, who I'm with to this day. I love Kate so much. So that's that, was, that's, that was my first book. Yes. So, so what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Well, I think, first of all, just like I said, I, I was so, I have so much insecurity that it's so terrible that I need other people to tell me it's okay for me to feel like I can do it. And so I think one piece of advice would be to just ignore the outside world and what anybody else thinks. And if, if you want to do it, you should do it. And the second thing is that it's so terrifying, at least for me, and, to, and you, how do you know if anything's good or if anybody wants to read it or if it's interesting at all? But it, it's almost like I don't, I'm not sure if there is a way to, to banish that fear. And so I think really the best piece of advice is do it anyway. So it's almost do it no matter what, if you want to do it, no matter how scared you are, or do it no matter how insecure you are, or do it no matter what someone else might think of you. If somebody else thinks you should be a basketball player because you're so tall, but you really want to sit there and write, then just do it. It does seem there's now and there's death. And how do you want to spend that time? And if you want to write, you should definitely spend that time writing no matter what anyone else thinks or no matter what you're afraid of. So it's do it in spite of the fear. And also the other thing is I know there's so many people who have such need such precious circumstances. Like I have to have silence and I have to be in a room with Eastern exposure or whatever. I've never really had that luxury. I had kids right away and I've never had an office to write in and I've never had the luxury of space or isolation or nobody interrupting me. And so I trained myself to write with everything going on around me. And with my kids, I used to bring the computer in the car, go to school to pick them up and sit there and write in 10 minutes while I'm waiting carpool to pick them up. But I think if you really want to do it, you, you, the, the conditions will never be perfect. The time will never be right. So forget about conditions and timing and just do it. 
That's good advice. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, God. What I just finished was the Ricky Lee Jones memoir. And it's so good. Do, do you know Ricky Lee Jones? or do you I like do. Her? I haven't read the memoir. Oh, it's amazing. She's, it's like her music. It's very, it's not linear at all. It's mm-hmm. one paragraph, her mother's alive and she's talking about her. And the next paragraph, the mother's dead. And the next one, she's alive. And I'm thinking, wow. But it's just, you know, she's had such an amazing life. And so I just finished that. I just flew home from Amsterdam yesterday. And so I finished that on the plane and it was amazing. And I like, I like science and space and all that. And, and I was reading a book by Carlo Rovelli, a physicist. So I've mm-hmm. been reading his books. I just, so that's what I finished Ricky Lee on the airplane. And then I was reading the Rovelli last night, but I read, I read everything. <laughs> I, you know what I read? I don't read fantasy, but I read fiction and nonfiction. And there's, there are so many great books out there. It's just amazing. I almost feel like there, there isn't, life isn't long enough to read them all. There's so much great stuff to read. That's so true. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your new novel, Mary Jane? They can find me at www.jessicaanyablau.com. So there'll be two A's in a row. Or I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The one I like best is Instagram. I think it's fun to scroll through and see people's pictures. So I'm on Instagram the most and it's at Jessica Anya Blau. And I'm on Facebook. I don't quite understand Facebook. I'm, I'm having like the publicist wanted me to set up like an author page. So I have my personal page and my author page, but I have no idea how these two pages, right. but I like my personal page better. So go to my personal pages <laughs> and I don't know how anyone finds a difference, but I think they're all Jessica Anya Blau. And then Twitter, I just get on sporadically. Right. But they can find me anywhere. And yeah, I have to say people, readers are such a nice group of people in general, people who read books. And they've been so lovely about this book with people have been posting on Instagram pictures of the book with records and vinyl and 70s clothes and all these amazing photos that they're taking with the book that I'm just absolutely loving. Just the creativity and the effort. It's really nice and wonderful to see. That's great. Again, we've been speaking with Jessica Anya Blau, author of the new novel, Mary Jane. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Jessica, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the novel, Mary Jane, by Jessica Anya Blau, narrated by Caitlin Kinnanen. Available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. Mrs. Cohn showed me around the house. I wanted to stop at every turn and examine the things that were stacked and heaped in places they didn't belong. Books teetering on a burner on the stove, a coffee cup on a shoebox in the entrance hall, a copper Buddha on the radiator, a pink blow-up pool raft in the center of the living room. I had just turned 14. It was 1975, and my ideas about homes, furniture, and cleanliness ran straight into me like an umbilical cord from my mother. As Mrs. Cohn used her bare foot, toenails painted a glittering red, to kick aside a stack of sweaters on the steps, I felt a jolt of wonder. Did people really live like this? I suppose I knew that they did somewhere in the world but I never expected to find a home like this in our neighborhood, Roland Park, 
which my mother claimed was the finest neighborhood in Baltimore. On the second floor, all but one of the dark wood doors were open. The bottom half of the single closed door was plastered with impeachment, now more than ever, bumper stickers, and a masking taped poster of Snoopy dancing, nose in the air. Everything was slightly angled as if placed there by a drunk on his knees. This is Izzy's room. Mrs. Cohn opened the door and I followed her past Snoopy into a space that looked like it had been attacked by a cannon that shot out toys. An Etch-A-Sketch, Operation Gameboard, Legos, paper doll books, color forms, box, and stickies, Richard's scary books, and a heap of molded plastic horses. No surface was uncovered. I wondered if Izzy or her mother swept an arm across the bed at night, pushing everything to the floor. Izzy, I smiled. Our neighbor, Mrs. Riley, had told me her name was Isabel, but I liked Izzy better, the way it fizzed on my tongue. I didn't know anyone named Izzy or Isabel. I'd never even met Izzy Cohn. But through the recommendation of Mrs. Riley, and after a phone call with Mrs. Cohn, I'd been hired as the summer nanny. I had thought the phone call was going to be an interview, but really Mrs. Cohn just told me about Izzy. She doesn't like to play with kids her own age. I don't think she's interested in what other five-year-olds do. Really, she only wants to hang out with me all day, Mrs. Cohn had said. Which is usually fine, but I've got other stuff going on this summer, so... Mrs. Cohn had paused then, and I'd wondered if I was supposed to tell her that I'd take the job, or was I to wait for her to officially offer it to me? A five-year-old who only wanted to hang out with her mother was someone I understood. I, too, had been a girl who only wanted to hang out with her mother. I was still happy helping my mother with the chores in the house, sitting beside her and reading or grocery shopping with her, searching out the best bell peppers or the best cut of meat. When I did have to socialize with kids my age, like at the sleepovers to which every girl in the class had been invited, I felt like I was from another country. How did girls know what to whisper about? Why were they all thinking about the same things? Depending on the year, it could be Barbies, dress-up, boys, hairstyles, lip gloss, or Teen Beat magazine, none of which interested me. I had no real friends until middle school, when the Kellogg twins moved to Baltimore from Albany, New York. They, too, looked like they didn't know the customs and rituals of girlhood. They, too, were happy to spend an afternoon by the record player listening to the Pippin soundtrack or playing the piano and singing multi-layered Baroque songs in melody, harmony, and bass or watching reruns of The French Chef and then trying out one of the recipes, or even just making a simple dessert featured in Good Housekeeping magazine. The more Mrs. Cohn told me about Izzy on that phone call, the more I wanted to take care of her. All I could think was how much nicer it would be to spend my summer looking after a little girl who had no friends than going to our country club pool and being the girl who had no friends. I barely listened when Mrs. Cohn told me how much they'd pay. The money felt like a bonus. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.